We're going to have a uh, baptismal a little later on in this morning's service, so I just got to be mindful as I'm preaching and I kind of start pacing back and forth not to, not to fall in. So if I fall in, Nick's going to pull me out, right? All right, let me pray for us as we start. Father God, we give thanks this morning, and Lord, um, we just offer our hearts and our minds to you. And God, I pray uh, specifically that this service would not just be another Sunday service. God, I, I pray um, that heaven and earth would collide here. God, that you would move in a profound way, and that I would kind of step off the side and that you would speak um, into the lives of each person here and into the life of our church community. And God, I pray that um, these words, these words that I've been thinking about and praying on and that you've guided me towards would just really um, uh, come uh, straight forward from you. Uh, so God, I humbly just uh, bow before you and our desire as we just sang is to praise you, is to lift your name up to uh, make your name uh, known and to increase your reputation here in Maple Grove and the surrounding areas. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Well, we're in the midst of a new series of teachings here at Maple Grove Covenant Church, and we thought as we begin the new year, 2015, that we would look at really living the life that God wants for us and um, pushing back against uh, excuses. Uh, pushing it back against excuses that we use quite often, I do, you do, uh, for perhaps a bad marriage, rebellious kids, unstable finances, a bad temper, perhaps it's the inability to get a date or stay in shape. And we thought as we begin this, this new year that we take these first four weeks to really dive in and sort of address these excuses. Excuses like, but it's not in me. Or excuses like, but things will never change. Or like the excuse that we looked at last week, um, but it's not my fault. And this morning what we want to do is dive in individually and also collectively as a community to look at this excuse, but I don't have time. Because as I was talking to a person yesterday uh, who runs a hair salon, she said it, it, is, it is so prevalent in our culture and how much she hears that from her clients, this excuse, but I don't have time. Because all we, do, all we need to do is ha- take a cursory glance of our time and culture, and we see that so often, don't we? In fact, back in the 1960s, back in the 1960s, there was, there was actually a, a Senate subcommittee that, that looked at um, the concern of having extra time. Because of the advances of technology back in the 60s, they actually brought in a panel of time experts, time management experts, to actually give testimony on what Congress should do because it seemed like Americans were going to have all this extra time. And, and the Senate was, was concerned that people would actually be working less hours or they would be actually retiring sooner. And the Congress was concerned about the impact on, on our economy. Because at that time, it seemed like, because these advances in technology, is that we would have so much time that we'd actually be, in a sense, time-rich. And we fast-forward to today in our lives, and we realize it's actually, actually the opposite. Despite the advances in technology, if anything, we're time-poor, right? 
Researchers say that in America that we're time poor but yet possession rich. And when you go to uh, most of the world, third world countries in particular, it's the opposite. Is that actually they're time rich and possession poor. And this came to light for me a while ago. I was pastoring a church and at our church we wanted to uh, develop a, a partnership with organization in Uganda, Africa. So I went over to Uganda, Africa for a couple of weeks. And when I was over there, um, we just had an incredible experience, the team that I was with. And we were so excited when we got off the plane and we were in Kampala, Uganda, and so stoked, so excited to kind of jump in and, and visit the different villages to see the poorest of the poor and, and what kind of dent, what kind of impact that our church could make uh, among these villages. So uh, I said to our host, you know, we're going to be ready right away in the morning, and we're going to be ready to go about 8.30, and he, he just kind of smiled at me and said, I'll, I'll pick you up in the morning. So th the next morning, you know, my team had breakfast, and we were really excited, and we were praying, and, and, and we were ready to go at 8.30, and we waited. And we waited. And our host showed up at 11 o'clock. And I was so surprised because he didn't apologize. In fact, he seemed really happy, which actually made my frustration worse, is that he really didn't care that he was late, according to me. And yet, I just kind of let it go. I wanted to be a nice person and all that kind of stuff and be a good pastor and all that. And we went up about the day, and we saw, as I prayed about heaven and earth colliding, we saw that happen in these villages. We saw beautiful things happening, amazing ministry and seeing the smiles of these, these uh, beautiful orphans, 176 in this one village um, uh, in Nairobi. And we wanted to make a difference in this village. So we came away from that day just so thrilled about what God was doing. So again, we, the next day we were even more eager to have as much time as possible in the villages. So I said to our host, you know, uh, before we went to bed that night, I said, pick us up right away in the morning. We want to get started right at 7 o'clock. And he smiled and said to me, I'll see you in the morning. So my team, you know, we had breakfast, and we got ready and everything, and, and we were ready to go at 7.30. And we waited. It's like a broken record. And we waited. And he showed up at 10 o'clock. And I realized there's a difference. There's American time and there's African time. And their time is simply morning, afternoon, and evening. That's it. In fact, I, later on, I, I said to him, I said, you know, how come you came so late? And, you know, our, my team was ready to go. We were so excited. And he said, well, I told you I'd pick you up in the morning. And I said, yeah, that, that's true. And yet, what I noticed among the Africans was this. There was a freedom. That there wasn't a sense of hurriedness that there wasn't a sense of, of like having so much to do. In fact, what I saw was this freedom and this joy, and it was absolutely infectious. And as, as one, of the, one of the leaders of the village said to me, you know, when, we, when it comes to uh, each day, we believe that there's going to be enough time in each day to get the things that need to be done. It's my first experience in a, in a, in a culture, in a people that approach time differently, differently than me. In fact, I noticed for a lot of, a lot of the, the, the leaders, they didn't even have watches on. And it, it really spoke to me. And it also challenged me and, and, and in a way convicted me because so often, um, like you, I feel like I'm hostage to time. 
this excuse, but I don't have time because we pack so much in. It seems like, in, in a way, we're imprisoned by, by time. That the ticking clock, that time, each second, each minute, each hour, that you and I, in many ways, are chained to the clock. And, and yet this experience I had in Africa really challenged me on that. And, and, and to live it, perhaps, in a different way. So this morning, I want to dive in for us as a community to really look at this excuse, but I don't have time because what we're really saying, what we're really saying is that we, we are chained to time. What we're really saying is that time controls our lives, that time is in charge of our lives. And, and for us, what's our response? And I think, I think typically for us is to combat this scarcity, this time poverty that we have by, I think, a few different ways. I think one of them is simply multitasking, which has entered in the American lexicon. I mean, we use it so often, don't we? Multitasking. In many ways, this picture of a family is, is the American family today, isn't it? I mean, five or six years ago, multitasking was kind of a, more of a novel term, but we see in this picture right here, this family having dinner together, and they're on their devices, they're having dinner, they're having conversation. If you notice in the background, you can barely see it. Even Grandpa has a handheld device, okay? In many ways, this is the American family. So that's one of the ways that we try to combat this control, this sort of imprisonment that we have towards time, where time seems to dictate our lives the minutes, the hours, the days, the weeks, it seems so often that we're in prison the time, so we try to combat it by leveraging our time, where we can try to do two or three or four or five things at once. We can have dinner, we can have a conversation, we can be answering email, all those sort of things at the same time, and we're fooling ourselves because, as we know, it just, it's cyclical. It makes it worse. In fact, if anything, it's like we, the excuse, but I don't have time, is even more prevalent as a result of the, the devices that we have. Well, this morning, I want to speak to you and speak to myself as another way that we actually can combat this sort of time scarcity, or perhaps this, this excuse, but I don't have time. And what I want to do is I want to look at three examples in the Bible, because the Bible speaks on how we can use our time and how we can actually live our lives the way God intended and not be in prison, not be in bondage to the minutes and the hours and the days, to not be in prison to the ticking clock. And we'll look at the example of Moses, and then the example of David, and then also the example of Jesus. So if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the slides behind me. And there's uh, Bibles in the, in the pews. You can follow along as well. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. And it's really for us to kind of look at what sort of lives Moses and David and Jesus lived as they sought to kind of live out the minutes of the day. So we pick it up in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he went deep into the wilderness near Sinai, the mountain of God. Suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to him as a blazing fire in a bush. Moses was amazed, just like the rest of us would be. Moses was amazed because the bush was engulfed in flames, but it didn't burn up. 
Amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go over to see this. When the Lord saw that he had caught Moses' attention, God called to him from the bush, bush, Moses, Moses. Right there, it's heaven and earth colliding in that moment. Moses, Moses, here I am. Moses replied, do not come any closer, God told him. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your ancestors, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he hid his face in his hands because he was afraid to look at God. What is happening in this story? Moses is tending to his flock in Midian, and he notices something different. He sees a bush that's engulfed in flames, and it's not burning up. So perhaps we have a bush somewhat like this. And if I were to light this up, how long would it take? How long would it take for this bush to be engulfed in flames before you and I said, you know what, that bush is not burning up. It's staying in flames. 10 minutes? 15 minutes? How long? If we're, we're flammable, I don't know if it is or not, but maybe 15 minutes? So Moses comes to this bush and perhaps stands there in Midian and he notices this bush, it, it's, it's not burning up. It's engulfed in flames and, and it's not burning up. It's interesting and it's probably more of an apocryphal source, but there's some rabbinical writings in the ancient times that actually say, because Moses was in the desert for 40 years, if you know the story, that this bush, these rabbinical writings say and suggest um, that the bush was burning for 40 years. And finally, on that day, Moses stood long enough in one place, not worried about the next thing, being flexible with his time to be fully present in front of this burning bush. He wasn't so consumed with tomorrow or the next thing, but actually stood long enough, 15 minutes, to notice the, this bush. And I would submit to you that as we talk about this excuse, but I don't have time, I think in many ways uh, Moses models for us how, how we can live. It's actually simply to stand long enough and to be fully present, to be flexible. Because Moses takes a detour. He takes a detour from what he's supposed to be normally doing, and he sees a bush that's not burning up, and he stands there long enough, and God speaks to him. He has this extraordinary experience. How often do you and I, in, in the weeks of our lives, that we're so consumed about the next thing and, and the next appointment or the next project, and it, certainly we, we need to be that way, but how often do you and I walk by the burning bushes in our lives when God is trying to say, Moses, Moses? How often do you and I don't have the capacity to stand 15 minutes in one place and to have our attention and our, and our focus fixed on something because we're reading an email and we're doing something else and yet God's trying to call our attention? Moses, Moses, God calls out. And I think for us, as we combat this excuse, but I don't have time, I think one of the answers to that is to be flexible with your time. To actually take a detour and then to be fully present. 
be fully present for that conversation, to be fully present for that circumstance, to be fully present for what is happening in front of you. Let's fast forward now. You don't have to turn to this. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses. But in 1 Samuel chapter 20, you go to verse 41. So we have the example of Moses, and now we have the example of King David. And I've always been kind of struck by King David because he's this morally complex figure, right? At the same time, the, God, the Bible says that Moses, or, uh, David was a, a man after God's own heart. That King David, despite being a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, and everything else, he's a man after God's own heart, which is really interesting to me. Why was that? Why is he called a man after God's own heart? And I think one of the reasons why is because David lived in the moment. When he was involved in something, and we read in the Psalms, for example, when he worships God, he worships with the totality of his life, with everything that he has. When, when, when David was involved in something, he was fully engaged, fully present. We pick it up in chapter 20, verse 41. And this is when... David is saying goodbye to his good friend Jonathan. They're best friends. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears, and then they embraced each other. Now here's the key phrase. And said goodbye, especially David. If you have a different translation, it actually says, David cried even more. What's the writer trying to say? That David is in tune with his emotional side or something? Is this the, maybe this is a verse that the wives want to kind of write this down and put on a piece of paper and, and hand it to your husband. And, he cry, and David cried even more. See? See? What's the writer trying to say? I think what we're seeing is that when David came to a moment like this, he had one chance. We have a high school graduation. We have a prom. We have the last minutes with a loved one. Those moments come, and you have one chance. And you need to be fully present. And not the excuse, but I don't have time, to actually be flexible, drop everything, and fix your attention on what's in front of you. And that's exactly what David does. He embodies that for us. Be flexible, be fully present. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we see another example of this because this theme, the sort of thread, we see this running through David's life, this fully present, this sort of presentness um, where he is, he is focused on what's in front of him. So in 1 Samuel, he says goodbye to Jonathan and he cries and the writer says he cries even more. And then we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obedim, his home, and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark to the city of David with a great celebration, it says. After the men who were carrying it had gone six steps, they stopped and waited so David could sacrifice an ox and a fattened calf. And if you read the story, they actually do that like every six steps or so, which would be a long sort of procession. And David danced before the Lord, for to say, with all his might. Because here's the moment. Here is the moment. You have one chance. And he dances with all his might in, to the point where his wife is embarrassed by what he's doing. That the king is out there parading and dancing. And David embodies this spontaneity. 
but I don't have time. But he drops that. I'm sure he had enough to do, but he drops those things, and he's spontaneous, and he's fully present to what God is doing. He dances with all his might. Let's turn now to Mark chapter 10 and see the example of Jesus. Mark chapter 10. It's in the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible, in verse 13. And this is a passage that we use in infant baptisms or child dedications. And the culture of that day, by the way, the sort of the backdrop is that children weren't highly regarded. They were not held up uh, to the point that we do in our lives today, especially in the Midwest, that children are so highly regarded and so treasured, um, a little bit too much sometimes, I think. But back in that day, children were, it were very much looked down upon, like, get them out of the way. They're not very important. So what Jesus does here is really, it's inverted. It's countercultural what he describes here in verse 13. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them, but the disciples told them not to bother him. But when Jesus saw what was happening, he was very displeased with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, anyone who doesn't have their kind of faith will never get into the kingdom of God. That is an unbelievable and radical thought. It's pointing to children in that day and culture as the example of what it is to be a person of faith. So if someone were to ask Jesus at this point of time, what does it look like to be a follower of yours? What does it look like to be a, a, a person of God? Jesus points to children and he says, look at them. This is what it looks like. Why? Like Moses, like David, I think what Jesus is trying to say, among other things, is that in children, they're spontaneous. There's an innocence and there's a wonder to them that when they engage into a moment, whether it's sledding or perhaps ice skating, or drawing, is that they're fully engaged in the moment at hand. They're not regretting yesterday, although as parents, we wish they would sometimes. They're not worried about tomorrow, although as parents, we wish they would more. Is that when they're engaged in something like sledding or ice skating or whatever it is, is that they're, they're fully present until we hand them an iPhone when they're 12 years old or something. Before that, though, there, there's a wonder, there, there's a, a beauty to children that they're fully present. That they can stand long enough to kind of gaze and take in what's in front of them. And I think in many ways for us, as the people of God, is to live in such a way where we drop our schedule, where we drop our appointments and just be spontaneous and to be flexible and to be fully present. What's interesting, um, the Greeks actually, when it, when it came to um, defining time, the Greeks had two different words in how they described time. One was chronos. That's where we, we get the English word chronology. The sequence of events. It's the next thing, the next, next item. So it's looking at time and, and seeing sort of chronology of events. That was one way they looked at time. But the other way, the other way they looked at time was this Greek word kairos. And kairos was not so much the chronology of events, but really 
um, looking at the present moment and the opportunity, the opportunity of the moment. And I think for many ways for us is actually to have a Kairos view of time where we look at the moment and that we're flexible enough, we're spontaneous enough for what God might be doing in a conversation um, at our workplace or in our family to be spontaneous enough, even though we have responsibilities and we need, need to get to those, but avoiding that excuse, but I don't have time, and we just react to something and fully present for what God might be doing in the midst of this. And you might be asking that question, but how do we really do this? How does that really happen? Because I think for a lot of us, we, the life that we live, and you're, you're probably responding and saying, Craig, you don't understand the life I live. I mean, I have a stack of papers. I have so many things to do. I'm working 70 hours a week, and I'm going to my kids' traveling basketball games, and you're up there preaching, uh, be spontaneous, be fully present. Yeah, it sounds almost, almost a bit idealistic, a, a little religious hype to it. And, and maybe for you it's, where this worry and concern and anxiety about the next thing, this chronos view of time, where you're stuck thinking and worrying about tomorrow. And what happens is that you clutch on to the next thing. And you're clutching on to uh, what's going to happen next week and how you'll perform in that presentation next week. And you're clutching on to it, and your hands are not free to embrace what is in the here and now and the opportunity of the moment. So what does that look like? I think it can be small things. Maybe it's just something do, doing something spontaneous in the middle of a work day. The last couple of weeks here at church, it's been uh, quite busy. Getting ready for the prayer event last week and uh, getting ready, ready for the uh, Valentine's Carnival and a number of things going on. And Julie Mackay, who is just a wonderful uh, staff member, my assistant and our receptionist here at church. Uh, Julie, if you know Julie, she's often in the center of the storm. And she's been quite busy. And this week, um, I may have a little bit of envy, she went to California. So she had two days in the office, Monday and Tuesday. So she had to get a lot of things done and, and, and make sure things were in place. Because Lisa Griffith, who fills in uh, time and again for Julie, was coming in. And, and Julie wanted to make sure everything was, was set and everything was ready. And it was late on Tuesday evening. And she's kind of organizing things and putting post-its and notes for Lisa everywhere possible. And, and I was in the midst of working on my sermon, and, and I thought, now is the time for some spontaneity. So I noticed Julie kind of moving around, and then I saw her keys. So I went over and took her keys and put them in my pocket. And I just kept walking around, working on my sermon. And I was making sure I was saying a lot about Jesus and God and, you know, something very, very, very spiritual. And, and Julie's trying to get things organized, and, and then... And then it's time for her to go. She's put her coat on. She's got her purse, and, and she's kind of in a rush a little bit. And all of a sudden, I hear the panic. Where are my keys? In a really high-pitched voice. And uh, because, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm compassionate, I, I only made her suffer for about 30 minutes. That's, that's all. <laughs> only a few minutes. Only a few minutes. And I gave her her keys, and we just laughed. And it wasn't like it was a big thing, but sometimes just doing something like that, it just brings an element into an office place or a family or a friendship, something spontaneous like that. Or maybe it's, it's something a little bit bigger than that. 
uh, a family in our, in our congregation, uh, Dale and Carrie Nearson, their son Grant, who interned for us last summer, was in a serious car accident uh, last November. If you remember this, a lot of us prayed for him. Where he was in the back of a pickup truck and um, in a residential road in Eau Claire because he goes to UW-Eau Claire. Well, Grant was in the back of that pickup truck and that truck uh, veered quickly. And he fell out of the truck and the back tire of that truck ran right over his chest. And it broke his ribs and it punctured his lung and, and Grant was in a very serious condition. And, and Dale and Carrie got the call and they cruised out to Eau Claire right on the spot, of course. And then their community group, their friends, heard about the news as well. All of them dropped what they were doing to drive out to Eau Claire to be there with the Nearsons that night. And I'm sure they had plenty of things to do, these families. And yet, they were flexible. They didn't say, but I don't have time. They dropped what they were doing just to love on the Nearsons, to be supportive, to be there for them. I think those are a couple of ways that uh, we can live with this sort of life that we combat time and we don't give in to that excuse. We don't allow the clock to dictate our lives where we are flexible people and we're fully present. It's interesting, in Russia, there's a group of people, a small group of people, kind of a monastic group um, called the Pushinik. If I pronounced that correctly, my Russian's not exactly the best, but uh, this Pushinik group where they're, they take a vow and the vow is um, a vow of availability. They keep the latch off their door as a visible sign that they're available for interruptions, that they're available for anybody who may, ha may have a need. The Pushinik are available to the community. And I think about my life so often where um, I think oftentimes the, the latch is on my door. And so often, I'm not available. And I miss out on these kairos moments because I'm not willing to stand 15 or 20 minutes long enough and God wants to do something. Or I'm not willing to drop my guard and be spontaneous enough to cry even more or to dance with all my might. Where I'm not spontaneous enough like children to take in the beauty of our lives. How often for you and I, when we have these moments like a sunrise, that we're willing to let go, to have our hands and our lives free to embrace, perhaps stand on a beach and take in something as simple as a sunrise. And in doing so, reflect on the wonder and the beauty of this life. just to stand long enough to see a sunrise come above an ocean. And perhaps we have plans, we have things to do, but to be fully present for a sunrise. We have these moments today to stand long enough to gaze upon the beauty of this life where heaven and earth do collide. 
James reminds us in the New Testament, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. All we have is today. So whatever our mind is on that next thing or the next appointment, all we have is today. And if we live under the illusion, you and I, if we live under this illusion that I'll get to that person next week or I'll I'll get to that relationship uh, in a couple of weeks or I'll do that one thing with my spouse next month, pretty soon that, that tomorrow or that next week or that next month becomes yesterday. And we miss out. We miss that moment. And it doesn't come back. And the answer to it isn't to like freeze our kids so they don't get any older. So we have those moments. And the answer isn't to freeze relationships and keep them static. But actually to live our lives in a different way where we're spontaneous, we're flexible, and we're fully present to what God may be doing. Where we respond to what God is doing in the here and the now. And as we do that, we can live without regret because we were there the entire way through. You and I, in this community, Maple Grove Covenant Church, can live with no ifs, ands, or buts. Let me pray. Father God, we give thanks for this morning. And Lord, I pray that as a community that we be the kind of people that live differently, that we don't give in to the tyranny of time. We don't give in to the seemingly power of time, but actually to live differently. To be the kind of people that are spontaneous and flexible and fully present. Where we take these moments and recognize them and and see that there's something going on here where heaven and earth is colliding. God, that is not an easy thing to do. It's very difficult. It's very challenging. We live busy lives. I just pray, God, that we take a small step, a small step, and as we do, we don't have to give in this excuse, but I don't have time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.